is Arif Katra, and I'm the host of Voices Worth Listening To. This is a podcast dedicated to sharing stories about diversity, stories that I hope will make you think and reflect on how we experience each other's differences. My goal is to encourage change in our individual perspectives and in the ways in which we live and work together. In this episode, I try to answer two questions. What explains the deficit of diversity in leadership teams? And how can organizations change this reality? To help me answer these questions, I have a special guest, Dr. Nancy Wallace, who will share with us her leadership journey and how she recently had to grapple with how difficult it is for some leadership teams to introduce diversity. In most of my conversations with senior managers, it's clear to me that they understand and recognize that talent comes in all forms, shapes, sizes, and colors. They recognize that people with diverse lived experiences, more often than not, have grit. Whether you like Angela Duckworth's take on grit or how Paul Stoltz talks about grit, grit and lived experience go hand in hand. Grit is a life force. It's an I-can-see-the-opportunity-for-success-and-make-it-happen life force. It comes from a commitment to learning and a willingness to fail, get up, fail, get up, fail, get up. You get it. Grit comes from standing up for what you believe in and a willingness to invest in your own ideas, often in the face of much criticism. And finally, grit comes from knowing deep in your heart that hope matters to success. It's no surprise that people with grit help organizations reach new performance heights, be more innovative, and launch and sustain new initiatives. If we've learned anything in the last few years, we've learned that our institutions are riddled with systems that work against diversity, equity, and inclusion. So when someone with diverse lived experience excels, grit is often the reason. Executives know this. They know and understand the link between diversity and grit. The challenge they face is bringing that diversity into their top management teams. Let's take the example of Aman. Aman is a talented MBA, and his company knows it. He is regularly asked to lead key initiatives with the potential for big impact. Aman knows his lived experience is key to his ability to make things happen. And he's a rock star. And like any employee who makes a significant contribution, Aman develops an expectation of reciprocity, that the organization will see his potential and his performance and reward him with increased leadership responsibilities. And if that trajectory continues, it won't be long before Aman is invited into the ranks of top leadership. The reality of the business environments in Canada and the U.S., is that although Aman may get a few bones thrown his way 
in terms of additional interesting projects, it's highly unlikely that he will be invited into the leadership team ranks. People like Aman are often described as being awesome leadership material, but they rarely get the chance to sew that material into a tux or a gown. They rarely get to lead at their organization's highest echelons. When you look at Canadian and U.S. organizations, you see diversity in their front and middle-line hires, in their almost senior managers, in their BIPOC committees, and even on their boards. But you don't see diversity in their leadership teams, the body that makes the decisions that matter. You might be asking, is that true? Well, let's look at the data. In the U.S., almost 15% of the population is black, and less than 1% of Fortune 500 companies have a black CEO. Canada doesn't fare much better. Almost 5% of the Canadian population is black, 10% in Toronto, and less than 1% of Canadian companies have a black CEO. The numbers don't improve significantly when you look at other racialized groups. So when faced with these stats, what do leaders in these organizations say? We commit to changing who is part of our leadership teams? No. What they do is establish BIPOC committees. They donate to black charities. They donate to social justice groups. Let's look at the Bank of Montreal. They donated a million dollars to social and racial justice groups. They have 12 members on their executive leadership team and 10 on their senior executive team. Out of the 22, two, maybe three are visible minorities. That's around 10%. Royal Bank of Canada, eight executive officers, no visible minorities. Tesla, as of today, no visible minorities on its leadership team. The public sector, about the same. So what explains the deficit of diversity in leadership? My hypothesis? Homeostasis, a complex form of inertia rooted in risk management that works to keep things the same. When an organization has experienced success, it is easily lulled into preservation mode. It resists change, especially within its leadership teams. But is that good for business? Think Uber versus Lyft. Lyft's management team of five has one woman and no people of color. Uber's management team of 10 has three women and six people of color. Uber's valuation? It's five times that of Lyft. When the keepers of success, those on leadership teams, have similar lived experiences, the homeostasis grows exponentially. And so when shining stars with oodles of grit and strong leadership potential emerge among the ranks that senior managers can actually see, the risk they impose to the way things are is too great. And most leaders take a pass. See, as much value as grit brings to an organization, 
for a leadership team bathing in homeostasis, that grit, that diversity represents a very high level of risk. Until management teams sit down and truly figure this out for themselves, no number of BIPOC committees and no measuring of diversity will bring about real change. As you listen to this, some of you will question, is this real? Are leadership teams actually resistant to people who've been gloriously successful in organizations, but who represent a lived experience and a way of being that poses too much risk to leadership? Does this explain why we see such limited diversity on leadership teams? Well, let me introduce you to a good friend of mine, Dr. Nancy Wallace. Nancy is one of the most original, kind, and unique personalities I've ever met. And I think Nancy's story is one that can shed some light on my key hypothesis. Nancy, welcome to Voices Worth Listening To. Thank you, Arif. It's great to be here with you. Nancy, I've always enjoyed learning about leadership from you. Your thoughts and insights always strike me as really innovative and cutting edge. And I love how you apply leadership to areas and in ways most of us don't even think of. So I know you have an interesting story. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Arif, you're very generous. Thank you for that. Um, and yes, I'd love to, love to tell you a bit about that. Uh, so my 40 year career thus far really began as an executive in the healthcare insurance industry where my interest in leadership was peaked. And I would follow this passion for several decades, earning graduate degrees, including a doctorate in organizational leadership and serving as a professor of undergraduate and graduate leading classes in various business schools here and in the EU. And I've also served as an organizational consultant, a senior team leadership coach, and as a coach for individual executives. I've loved all of it and I've accompanied both leaders and teams in some very challenging problems where they reached for something unseen. Let's call it the divinity in human beings or the spark or the mystery of soul work when it gives rise to things like forgiveness and love and transformation of the human heart. I wanted to study this mystery, this pull of however you wanna to refer to it, God, the divine, our creator or love. And so it felt natural to me to return to graduate school again, this time seminary. In over four years, I grew in my faith, always with a desire to integrate my love for the potential in leadership with my deepening faith journey. In addition to studying theology, liturgy, and the mystics, I also was in discernment for ordination to the priesthood, which by the way, requires an opening of one's heart to the whispers of the divine. You were gonna become a priest. Well, it developed over time, but yes, that was, that was a very gradual kind of unfolding of what happened during seminary because you know, through the whole thing, you're called to open your heart to the movement of the spirit and not pretend you think you know what that is. Um, 
So in that experience, it's actually raw and wild, it's intimate and unseen, and it's entirely risky, which is something I was you know, somewhat familiar with in, in my leadership career, because one cannot know precisely where it will lead. But being grounded in, a de in adult development theory, I knew at another level what was happening. I was experiencing a deep integration of my passions around my love of healthy and effective leadership, my love for lifelong learning, and my love for the divine mystery. Nancy, you know that I love you, but you seem like an atypical applicant for ministerial work. You're a thinker, doer, pushing the envelope kind of person. Are you the kind of person the church was looking for? Well, are perhaps looking at this from an out, outside perspective, that would seem to be a reasonable conclusion. However, as you know me, and as I've come to understand my effectiveness as a consultant and a coach, I'm at my best as a generator of new ideas and patterns and possibilities. And, I, and you named that. Um, I'm also a translator, a bridge builder, someone who loves humanity and wants us to do better and be more of what we are capable of being. So these past few years of discernment and seminary felt to me wholly natural as preparing me for an as yet unscripted, not quite defined way of offering my time and talent in ways that blended the best of leadership and the best of our human divine potential. So to those who understood this about me and were following my journey more closely, this deep integration that was underway. So these, I'm talking about my professors, my mentoring priests, each member of two different discernment committees, my family, my close friends, to a person they each said, oh my God, you are exactly what the church needs. Now, that felt very affirming, it felt good, but I also knew I didn't yet know the specifics. Uh, so all I can tell you was I was certain of the direction and my call to serve in ways that would leverage who I was becoming and what I had to offer. Uh, but now with the benefit of hindsight, <laughs> I can answer your question, no, I don't think that was what the church was looking for because at the end of this long, deep process, the church leadership chose not to invite me to continue toward ordained ministry. Wow. That was four years of your life. I mean, you must have made enormous sacrifices professionally, personally, financially. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. But, but remember, it's balanced by me following, if you want to say my North Star, I mean, it all felt natural. It felt natural to go back to school. That's been part of my pattern. It's actually a standing joke. Um, so I was careful. Was I just going back to school again? Well, no, there was something deeper and just really beautiful going on. And I wouldn't trade those four years for the world. I would, knowing what I know now, I would still do what I did. So whether, you know, we're talking about a church, I could be talking about a mosque, um, you know, people that think like you, people who want to mix 
and integrate leadership with a higher calling is something I think so many religious organizations need. So what happened in your case? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> I think it's safe to say, if one looks at the history of the Protestant Catholic Church, that there's not a rich history of seeking out and selecting for strong feminine leadership. And I'm using this as both a leadership archetype and as a human gender. So while I was having this richly formative experience, preparing me to serve in new, in new and integrative and transformative ways, the church as institution, I'm speaking here to the administ administrative part, wasn't, shall we say, of a similar mindset. Um, I think the church as institution is not generally known for embracing change, uh, and nor is it really held accountable to regulations and structures which protect underrepresented peoples. In fact, it's not even accountable to itself. So it really shouldn't have been surprising what happened. I mean, I really shouldn't have been shocked. Um, it was both the decision and the way it was communicated without any reason given, no willingness to even have a conversation about their decision. And no interest in other ways in which my calling could be leading me to other work in the church. Um, one of my closest friends described it. He said, you know, after four years of academics and discernment and, and tons of interviews, it was as if they had thrown you over a cliff. And as I worked in my you know, healing journey for months after, I really came to appreciate the, just the passion in that metaphor because it really felt like that. Because on the inside, I was following, very clearly following what I was called to do. And as I've told you, I wouldn't trade the experience for the world. But then to have it be met with externally, just such opposition and such, no, that's not what we had in mind. You know, after being told, have an open heart, be, be open to whatever God decides and what, you know, it just was like, like this collision um, in my heart. And that's, that, was the, that was the hard part. Um, so I can't tell you their reasons, they never said, but I do think it has to do with what I said a minute ago that we had different ideas of what God might be up to in the church uh, and where my talents and time and treasure might've contributed. Uh, and we never had that conversation. So maybe it was fear of change. Maybe it was fear of what strong transforming leadership looks like. And especially when it appears in a female body, I just, I just, I don't know. I don't know. I only have my hunches. You know, the word that keeps shining in my head is risky. You just seemed risky. Hmm. That's funny because that's, that's really what change is all about, right? Because you can't predict the outcome. And yet we know we're called to care for the least of these. We're called to be transformed in Christ's mind. You know, what St. Paul was always inviting us to do was uh, to be transformed in, in the image of God. So it, it's a lifelong journey with no guarantee of what the outcome looks like. Like that's the very nature of our faith.
I know that when we worked together in California, neither you nor I, and you know, a few of our colleagues who we still remain friends with, didn't fit the mold of the institution that we were at. So here again is a story of you not fitting into the mold. So what's next for you? In terms of what's next, I think I'm even more passionate about doing the work that lies at the intersection of transformative leadership and this connection between the human and the divine. For example, if there's conflict on a team or people are really struggling with the tension, say, between keeping things the same and leading change or the tension between competence and being warm to people or the tension between holding people accountable and being forgiving. You know, these are all tensions that leaders have to navigate. Um, And at their core, when they're finding that third way to do that kind of work, I really think we're talking about the spirit, that third way being something that's part of the mystery that is humanity at its best. So I found a a new space to play and work in. And that is that space that is leadership and the human divine connection. And that space in between, I think, is actually really important for the world that we're headed into. So I just, I think the future is bright and it's just been a pleasure to have this conversation with you about it. Thank you for being here, Nancy. Nancy's story, Aman's story, and the stories of so many diverse high potential individuals support my hypothesis that leadership teams, be they for-profit firms or the church, fear risk and choose to stay the same. When leaders see shining stars emerge with diverse backgrounds, oodles of grit, and strong leadership potential, they see the risks these differences pose rather than the benefits. And more often than not, they pass and choose someone that is likely to better fit the mold. But I also believe that many leaders, especially today, want to change this reality. So how? First, when you have the opportunity as a leader to bring new people into your team, don't discount how important different lived experiences are to innovation and progress. A person who lives differently from the way you live is likely to bring insights that could take your organization to the next level. They will see what others may not. That's treating difference with dignity. So when the opportunity presents itself and you are on the leadership team, ask your colleagues. This person has a different lived experience from us. How might they see business opportunities that we may miss. Can we afford to let that go? Second, talk about the grit your various leadership team candidates have developed and demonstrated in their career. Senior managers are not only responsible for thinking, they are responsible for getting things done. Grit is key to knowing how to implement strategy. People with diverse lived experiences in Canadian and U.S. institutions have typically had many more obstacles to success and therefore many more opportunities to develop grit. 
How important is it to a well-rounded leadership team to have people with this journey on the team? Three, entertain the idea that diversity on your leadership team is the only way to future-proof your company's success. Today in Canada, there are 100,000 new startups founded every year, of which 45,000 will still exist 10 years from now. Many of these startups are taking market share away from large existing companies because large company leadership teams struggle to see the world differently. When you look at globalization, the American Enterprise Institute found that only 52 U.S. companies on the Fortune 500 in 1955 were still on that list in 2020. Why? Global innovation, global M&A activity, and global competition. Global senior management teams has been a key weakness of American leadership teams for decades. Want to survive? Well, this has to change. And diverse team members is the solution. I hope you'll join me again in a few weeks by subscribing to the podcast. And I especially hope that today, the time spent listening to this podcast made you feel that this was a voice worth listening to. If you would like more information about my work in diversity and strategy, please visit my website at www.strat-ology.com. That's S-T-R-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y dot com. The music in this podcast is from the Toronto Tabla Ensemble. To find out more, visit torontotabla.com. That's the word Toronto and the word tabla, T-A-B-L-A 